Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Raymond Arsenault, author of the new book, John Lewis in Search of the Beloved Community. Uh, Ray, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you. And congratulations uh, on the new book. Of course, he hardly needs any introduction, but remind us, who was John Lewis? Well, he was uh, probably the primary protest leader emerging from the civil rights movement, who later became a nationally recognized politician. He, uh, way back in 1965, Bayard Rustin suggested that the movement would have to move from protest to politics. And he urged people to do that. And John Lewis took him up on it eventually and had an extraordinary career as a congressman. I mean, you first met him in 2000 when you were writing about the civil rights movement and you subsequently got to know him. I mean, writing about a figure you personally admired puts demands on the biographer in terms of historical detachment. Uh, how did you overcome that challenge? Well, I'm not sure that I did, but I tr certainly tried. Uh, you know, it's difficult to write a book about uh, a man who was often characterized as being saintly. And, uh, you know, you, you like to have a bit of creative tension in a biographical story and a few warts, but uh, I'm afraid uh, John Lewis was uh, almost too good to be true, frankly. Uh, I, I'd experienced this before when I wrote a biography of Arthur Ashe and also wrote a book on Marian Anderson uh, and the famous concert in 1939 when the Daughters of the American Revolution would not permit her to sing at Constitution Hall. And, and in the book on the Freedom Rides, which sort of led to my deep interest in, in John Lewis. I think the only thing you can really do is just uh, so you lay your cards on the table and uh, tell your readers who you are and uh, not try to hide the fact that you have some emotional and intellectual involvement in the, in the protagonist that you're, that you're writing about. But I, I tried to give as, as balanced a treatment as, as possible. But uh, no, he's one of the most extraordinary people, I think in American history. I, I knew that before I wrote the book, but it became even more obvious as I got deeper and deeper into his story. I mean, it's interesting. You use the, that kind of language there. You described him as saintly, but you do also make the point in the introduction that behind this iconic persona, there was um, what I think you describe as a living, breathing person, someone who had grown up being African-American in 1940s Alabama with everything that that entailed. Growing up in that Jim Crow culture, there's, I think, inevitably going to be perhaps some level of damage. Uh, you know, you can't suffer that kind of discrimination and, and uh, oppression, really, without uh, coming out of it with some warts, uh, some, you know, difficulties. Uh, but I think uh, John Lewis did about as well as anyone could possibly be expected to do. He never really... Uh, certainly turned away from his background. Uh, now that I've met his brothers and nieces and nephews, and I have a better sense of the family, I realize that they helped to nurture him, that family, uh, even though they were desperately poor and no inside plumbing and no, no electricity and all that and dirt roads. And there was a kind of a nurturing environment, I think, a kind of loving environment, couched in part in kind of African-American Protestant religion. Um, but there was something deeper going on of people who, despite all the problems, sort of knew who they were and had a sense of self-respect. And he, he began with that, but he expanded it into an extraordinary kind of human rights vision 
of what the world could be. Yeah, and that that paradox is something that you really bring out in the book. I mean, you make it very clear that I mean, he's born into real rural poverty, as you as you pointed out earlier. And it's easy to forget how static those kind of rural societies could be during that period. And yet what comes across very clearly in the book that is in many ways, this is a classic telling of the American dream story, poverty to Congress to to national icon. Uh, yes, I, I would say so. I mean, it's almost like a Horatio Alger uh... A novel, uh, in a sense, um, you know, you never could have predicted the trajectory of his life. He was the first person in his family. He was one of ten children uh, to go to college, to even think about going to college. And there was a, a series of sort of contingent events that led him to American Baptist Theological Seminary in Nashville, and ultimately to Fisk University. He was something special from his early years. At the age of 11, he was known as the boy preacher. He had his picture in the paper. You know, he began by preaching to the chickens on their farm, <laughs> use them as kind of guinea pigs, so to speak. But um, what happened really uh, to put him in Nashville at that time, when I did the book on the Freedom Rides, I got to very close to a number of the, the Nashville Freedom Riders, and uh, several of them uh, suggested to me. Now, these are people with deep religious faith that somehow God put all these people together. There was there was no accident. Uh, and, and of course, from Nashville, they spread out and became uh, some of the leaders of the entire movement, people like C.T. Vivian and James Lawson uh, and, and John Lewis and Bernard Lafayette and Diane Nash, you know, kind of the shock troops of the movement by the, by the mid-60s. And uh, when I heard those kind of comments that it was some, something uh, you know, coming from the another world, uh, you know, I, I'm sure as as a relatively secular person, I was sort of skeptical. But you have to wonder, you know, how the, how this happened, how all these people came together and they became lifelong friends and comrades in arms in the nonviolent struggle that, that they would be involved in for the next half century. Yeah, I mean, he was one of those original uh, freedom riders. Uh, remind us what was at stake there. Well, the Congress of Racial Equality. Uh, early in the Kennedy administration, wanted to do something shocking that would force the Kennedy administration to, to align itself on the side of civil rights. Kennedy was basically a cold warrior at that point, not really interested in racial issues or civil rights issues. So they devised the Freedom Rides and put black and whites, basically students on buses and have them go into the Deep South and deliberately violate the local segregation laws that you couldn't sit in the front of the bus if you were black, that you couldn't sit at the lunch counter and the bus terminals and all of that. And they, they knew it was going to be provocative. They knew they w would be attacked. They might maybe even killed. Uh, you know, the number of them actually made out their last wills and testaments before they got on the buses because they, they didn't expect to come back. Um, but John was the only uh, one of the Nashville um, activists who was one of the original 13 Freedom Riders. So he was on the bus from Washington. It was a two-week trip to New Orleans. Uh, where they wanted to get there on May 17th, 1961, which was the seventh anniversary of the Brown decision and be involved in a kind of local celebration. And, but of course, they never, they never made it past, uh, past uh, Birmingham, you know, of the original riders. But the Nashville kids decided to bail them out. They said, we can't let it end like this. We can't let violence drive nonviolence out. We want to prove that the Deep South is ready for nonviolent direct action. So here they come again, a, a second wave of freedom riders 21 students, including John Lewis, into, into Birmingham. And that triggers a whole summer-long movement 
1961, more than 60 Freedom Rides, more than 430 Freedom Riders from all walks of life, north, south, male, female, black, white, young, old. Um, and it becomes uh, an extraordinary movement that actually, after six months, they actually win the first kind of uh, unambiguous victory of the movement. I mean, the Brown decision had, on paper, had desegregated the schools, but it hadn't really done it at that point. But the, the signs that said, you know, whites only, colors only, that had been in the buses and in the terminals for generations, they came down. There was some resistance, but within a year, pretty much that old system was, was pretty much gone. And, you know, we, we shouldn't underestimate the kind of personal courage which is involved here, not just during the Freedom Rides, but, but later with the marches that, I mean, John Lewis often suffered violent attacks. He was arrested more than 40 times. Uh, he was frequently assaulted on marches by racists. Uh, he was one of the most famous faces, an iconic image uh, from the attack on the bridge in Selma in Alabama in 1965. So as I say, there was real physical and moral courage on display here. Yes, I think that's really the heart of the matter. Uh, John was, became a symbol of that. He was arrested more than any other civil rights activist. He was beaten more than any other civil rights activist. It's, frankly, it's really a miracle that he survived uh, into the 1970s and 80s and, and, and beyond. Uh, you could see on his head, actually, you know, he had a shaved head, completely bald in his later years. And you could see the marks of these, these crushing blows that he took more than one, you know, fractured skull. And, you know, he, he sort of bear the marks of a, of a nonviolent warrior. And that's, that's the way he saw himself. You know, he never wavered in his faith in that this was the way you had to, to, in Gandhian terms, suffer uh, unmerited suffering. That's sort of, that's how you got your stripes as a nonviolent warrior. So during the Freedom Rides, when they put all of the, more than 300 of the Freedom Riders in Parchman Prison, thinking that would break the movement, it had exactly the opposite effect. They became, again, kind of the shock troops. They, they, they turned Parchman Prison into a university of nonviolence and drove their white tormentors crazy. They never encountered people like this before. And it was always this unexpected uh, sense of love, even for their enemies. Not all the Freedom Riders were quite that way. But the Nashville writers tended to, to be uh, Bernard Lafayette, who was uh, J John Lewis's roommate and who continues to be a, a major nonviolent trainer even today. Uh, he calls this moral jujitsu, that you sort of surprise your tormentor by being kind and being loving, and they don't expect that. And it throws them off balance. And that's the beginning of a real moral transformation of the, the heart and mind. A number of these uh, figures were influenced, as you say, by Gandhi and the whole concept of Satyagraha and so on. With, with John Lewis, was that philosophical or was it more instinctive, do you think, on his part? I think it was philosophical. I mean, there may have been some instinct involved, but he, you know, his, his connection to the social gospel uh, really began when he heard a, a radio sermon by Martin Luther King in 1956 during the Montgomery bus boycott. Uh, and then when he went to uh, American Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, he encountered, you know, the, the well, to some degree he encountered Gandhi, but other philosophers encountered the notion of the beloved community. He went to the workshops that J Jim Lawson, who's still alive, by the way, and still, still preaching nonviolent doctrine in his 90s. You know, Lawson was just, had an extraordinary impact on all of the Nashville riders. But I think 
particularly John, became his disciples. And he considered Lawson and, and Dr. King as his kind of great influences. But through them, he he absorbed all this kind of Gandhian philosophy. And for for John, it was always um, not a tactic. It was a, it was nonviolence was a way of life. It informed everything that he did. Uh, he always was looking at, at sort of the long story. Uh, even when he was in politics, he, he could be pragmatic. He, he could make compromises. He worked across the aisle and all of that. But but he never lost sight of the kind of eyes, kept his eyes on the prize, really. And that, for him, that was the beloved community. It was a transformation beyond political change. Political change was just the beginning. For him, for him he really wanted a, a change in the whole nature of kind of human interaction. Uh, and that's what he was struggling for. And he, ne he never gave up, even in the Trump years when, when he, many things depressed him deeply and he was really worried for the future of democracy. Um, he tried to keep as optimistic as possible and never stopped fighting, even when he was dying of pancreatic cancer in his last few days. You know, he made a final trip to Black Lives Matter Plaza, you know, north of the White House, and, and then he went into the hospital the next day. And he was writing editorials, op-ed pieces for the New York Times a few days before he died. Again, trying to sustain his legacy, trying to encourage people that even when I'm gone, you've got to continue this fight. You've got to... Uh, adopt this new philosophy as a as a way of life really i mean you mentioned uh, martin luther king uh, he'd written to him after being denied admission to troy university on the grounds of race uh, when he was a young man and 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 he soon became a protege of martin luther king but it wasn't always an easy relationship was it well i think it was always easy between the two men uh, but it caused a lot of trouble for john uh, because his SNCC colleagues, you know, he became the chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was the most radical of the civil rights groups. Uh, they sort of prided themselves on not really uh, kowtowing to any leadership. You know, they were all, they were their own moral agents, and and uh, all all through those years, when John was the the chairman of uh, SNCC, uh, he was also on the on the national board of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And a number of his friends in SNCC tried to tell him, "You've got to get off of that. You can't, you you can't really associate with these these uh, kind of upper middle class ministers who drive Cadillacs and wear, wear you know fancy suits and ties." But John never never did that. He wouldn't. He would not break with King. And uh, even even after some of the more unpleasant uh, kind of facts of 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 Dr. King's sex life or of the, the charges of plagiarism on his dissertation at Boston University. Uh, even though John probably in his heart was a little bit disappointed, he never lost faith. He really thought King was uh, an extraordinarily powerful and gifted and loving man. And he, he really modeled himself after after King. But there were some disagreements on strategy as well. Sometimes he felt that he was too conservative. And, and particularly when he moved, when Martin Luther King moved his focus away from the South to the North, that was something that uh, John Lewis thought was was a mistake. Yes, he did. And of course, there's the drama to some degree between them uh, at the March on Washington when King was one of the organizers and John was too, but he was, you know, was a young kid, really, even though he was had just been named the head of SNCC. And he wanted, he thought, even though SNCC didn't really want him to have any involvement in the March on Washington, he wanted to give a speech that was reflective of the organization. And it was a very radical speech. He talked about having a, a movement that would be like Sherman's army marching through Georgia. 
and the uh, the other organizers, even A. Philip Randolph, uh, even Baird Rustin and King, uh, were uncomfortable with that kind of language uh, because they they knew it would alienate the Kennedy administration and any chances of really the, getting this civil rights bill that was you know kind of on the on the dock at that point. But Lewis was absolutely determined that the March on Washington would not just be uh, a public relations stunt for the Kennedy administration. It was a march for jobs and freedom, and he wanted to emphasize that. And even though in the end he was willing to change some of the rhetoric, he didn't use the Sherman's March uh, analogy or any of that, but he gave the most radical speech that day, for sure. Most of the speakers referred to Negroes. Uh, he talked about black people, and he, he made a point of that. Even though he was never a race man, he always chose human rights over civil rights, if I can say that. He was a broad-gauge progressive uh, on LGBTQ issues, uh, on environmentalism, on health care, you name it. He was uh, had the whole spread. And, he, you know, he was a strong supporter of the American Civil Liberties Union and, of, and other kind of civil liberties and social justice groups and really way ahead of his time in so many issues. And he really internationalized his um, interest in, in human rights. And he was always fascinated with the situation in Africa, went to Africa in 1964, had an extraordinary experience of seeing nations which were controlled uh, by, by, by Africans, by black Africans, and actually met with Malcolm X in Kenya during his trip and had a kind of discussion about, you know, the philosophy of social justice and, and how to get there. It is interesting, though, that one of the things that does come through very clearly in the book is actually how little interest uh, John Lewis has in black nationalism, in identity politics. In many ways, it's poverty that almost seems more of a preoccupation uh, for him uh, than race. That's exactly right. Yeah, he, he, you know, in between his, his career as a protest leader and his political career, he had uh, positions in Washington for action, which ran... Vista and the Peace Corps, and he was involved with other programs with the Field Foundation and the Southern uh, Regional Council, where he basically helped when it went to some of the most depressed communities in the nation to help them with an economic cooperatives and health care and and it was not just blacks but also whites and you know he was kind of an equal opportunity um, progressive in the sense that he he cared as much about poor white people as he did about poor black people. Uh, and he, yes, he did. He really did not have much enthusiasm for black nationalism. He didn't like the slogan "Black Power." That's one of the things that drove him out of SNCC in 1966, and he was replaced by Stokely Carmichael. Um, and he, he certainly didn't like identity politics. There were a number of cases during his career when he had to choose between a white candidate to sporting white candidate that he thought was fully qualified and a black candidate that he did not think was quite as good. And he, he, he would choose the person he thought was best. And sometimes that was white. Yeah, I mean, you, you, quote, uh, you quote the historian Sean Wilentz calling uh, John Lewis the last integrationist. Yeah, yeah. I think Sean's piece was 1998, I think, was really apt. He, he really hit the nail on the head. John was a true integrationist. You know, he um, had this, this sense of, of a kind of broadly expressed love for humanity and respect for humanity and for human dignity. Uh, I think that was the heart of his integrity and his, and his whole being. He never wavered. 
Yeah, it's one of the the things that you talk about in the book, uh, that how early this idea of the enigma of John Lewis is written about. Uh, how could anybody who's been through what he's been through be so free of bitterness and hate, you say, at, at one stage? I mean, I, I met him once very briefly, and and it was very striking how quiet and personally understated, almost you know, personally conservative, shy even, uh, he was for a man who, by the end of his life, had this iconic status. He was, I think he was fundamentally shy. I don't think it was ever easy for him to do public speaking. He knew he had a slight lisp. He had a deep Southern accent. You know, he felt like he was kind of a rough country cousin of many of the other more urban blacks who were involved in, in the movement. And yet somehow he, he dredged up the courage to, to do it. But he oh, it seemed to be almost without ego. You know, I, when I, the first time I met him and I called him Congressman Lewis and he said, no, 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 call me John. Everybody calls me John. Uh, and I think, as I said at one point, he, he once said, he was borrowing this from another congressperson, but, but I think it was very apt. He said, I'm not a showboat, I'm a tugboat. And of course, that became clear when he, when he ran against Julian Bond, his good friend for Congress in 1986. And it was a real contrast in, 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 in styles, but, uh, that's exactly right. He very quiet, you know, in, in, in personal conversation, but he could be booming, you know, in a, in a public speech. And so he, he did have a sense of the dramatic, I think he eventually became in some ways a kind of actor. I think he had to be really to overcome his natural shyness. But it is interesting that that, that notion of the tugboat comes out in all kinds of small details in, in, this, in this biography. And one that struck me, uh, which was really surprising, actually, in, in some ways, but then when I thought about it, not surprising at all, you talk about his voting record just simply turning up at Congress, that in many sessions of Congress, he was one of the handful of, 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 of members of Congress who had a perfect record in terms of, in terms of voting. Incredibly conscientious. It's the diligence, isn't it, of the man? Well, he, he was one of the leaders, uh, along with Bernard Lafayette and others, who always would say, there's a difference between a protest and a movement. For a protest to become a movement, you, you need discipline. And he was really very devoted to the kind of the discipline it took to be nonviolent. Uh, to to turn the other cheek, to not strike back, and to and to show up. Uh, you know, he he was the kind of person. You know, he'd he'd work all day as a leader, and then he'd be sweeping up at the end of the day. You know, he would the kind of person who would uh, volunteer for the cleanup committee. That's the kind of person he was. You know, and it was just in in every aspect of of his life. And I think that's one reason why he was so inspiring to the people around him. Most of them knew John from an early age, and they they knew him when he wasn't famous. But it was interesting to be with him, as I was many times, and be surrounded by former freedom riders or other activists. And they just adored him, even though, you know, he got sort of pushed out of SNCC early on in the Black Power period. Beyond that, he was just almost beyond criticism, really, for the people who knew him well. There was just an, almost an awe of how brave he was, how much moral and physical courage he had to go his own way, to be independent. And it's hard to really understand quite how he got that way. I'm not sure I really fully, ever fully understood it, but I, but I witnessed it on many occasions and not only in my research, but in actually in, in reality, when I was with him on some occasions, uh, you know, we were on the Oprah show together and my, my favorite John Lewis story was, uh, you know, we had a former Klansman 
who had beaten him in Rock Hill, South Carolina, Elwin Wilson in 1961, and, and who had later left the Klan and got religion and got his life together. And then he always felt guilty about beating John so badly. And then he, in 2009, he saw John sitting behind Obama at the inauguration ceremony. Uh, and on a whim, kind of impulsively, he calls John in his office and he's crying over the phone and say, I'm so sorry. I've always felt so ashamed of what I did. I think with most people, that would have been the end of it. Well, not with John. He flies him up, flies Mr. Wilson up to meet with him. And they pray together and cry together. And then later when we were all on Oprah for the 50th anniversary of the Freedom Rides, after the American Experience film came out and she had seen it and was so moved, filmed by Stanley Nelson, based on my book. Anyway, um, I, I was sitting to John's right off of ca camera and, and uh, Mr. Wilson was on the other side and Oprah on the other side of him. And, you know, 10 million people or so watching, 180 Freedom Riders in the audience. Poor Mr. Wilson, who was in bad health, elderly. God knows how what he felt, really. But he, he was about to implode. Oprah asked the first question, and he, he just froze. And I thought he was going to bolt from the stage. And just instinctively, uh, naturally, I guess, John reaches out with his left hand and grabs Mr. Wilson's hand and in a big voice says, he's my brother. He's my brother. That's who he was. He, the, epitome of forgiveness and reconciliation. And it's a moment I'll never forget as long as I live. I think that that story helps explain why there was such an outpouring of emotion and affection and respect uh, for Lewis when he died in 2020. There was a lying in state in the Capitol building, uh, the first black congressman to lie in state in the, in the rotunda, the second in the Capitol itself. I mean, to, to use an unfashionable phrase, Ray, I mean, he, he was recognized in his own times as a great man. Yes, yes. I think he was a great and a good man, really. And it's personally inspiring. I, I mean, I, I think he changed my life, frankly. I mean, I, I know him. I spent time with him. Uh, but devoting the last four years, really, to a close look at his life just uh, led me to all kinds of sort of discussions with myself about what I believe and, and how committed I am to, to progressive values. And, and he just sets a, a standard which almost no one can reach, but it, it's, it's truly inspiring. And I think that's why so many people now are still talking about good trouble, getting into good trouble. Every person really that I've met that found out that I was writing this book, they get emotional, you know, they, they, they wanna tell me how they personally uh, was so affected by by his his example, by his courage, and just by the the ideas, and 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 he was really not just a man of ideas; he was a man of action, as he would often say. That's part of the whole tugboat, not showboat uh, notion. Uh, he really believed that you just had to keep moving. He was never happier than when he was out picketing or marching. For him, that was really an expression of of not only who he was, but how he hoped the world would be, that people would stand up for themselves and that, that, that somehow through the power of love in the kind of Kingian, Gandhian tradition would eventually overcome, even though he had tremendous obstacles to overcome in his life. And uh, he was no Pollyanna. He knew how difficult it was going to be, but he was always, it seemed, up to the challenge. So the book is John Lewis in Search of the Beloved Community. It's written by my guest, Raymond Arsenault, and published by Yale University Press in their Black Lives series. Uh, but for now, Ray, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure.
So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman, and this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. 